You've thought about joining a book club, but there's one problem. You're too busy, or buying books aren't in your budget, or some books aren't in the format that you can access, or you lose interest before you can finish, or maybe you have no interest in reading the book. Whatever the reason, there is a book club for that. Here at Book Interrupted, reading the book is not a prerequisite for joining the conversation. It's about connecting and celebrating life's interruptions. Join the community by following us on Facebook or contact us through our website at www.bookinterrupted.com fans. We'd love to hear from you. Parental guidance is recommended because this episode has mature topics and strong language. Here are some moments you can look forward to during this episode of Book Interrupted. And then I looked around the movie theater and I was the only person of color. So a thing called the familiarity bias. I think I only had white teachers. The same. We are I teaching racism in like, school. We need to start teaching anti-racism. Anti-racism, <laughs> Education system is not only a tool, it's been a weapon. Encourage this educational overhaul. Vote in political representation. Creating the society they want, whoever they are. Disrupted. Mind, body, and soul. Inspiration is the uh, And we're gonna talk it uh, out. On Book Interrupted. Welcome to Book Interrupted, a book club for busy people to connect and one that celebrates life's interruptions. If you'd like to join along, this book cycle is from May 9th to June 13th. It's the fan book choice. And Squiggy will be joining us for this book cycle. The book that we're reading is White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. In this in-depth exploration, this book examines how white fragility develops, how it protects racial inequality, and what we can do to engage more constructively. Let's listen in to this episode's group discussion. I like that she just did, she did like, um, she talked about prejudice discrimination and racism and how the three of them like prejudice is how you think preconceived notions discrimination is how you act towards other people with those and then racism is a systematic thing it requires power it's a whole system that we live in and like even like it talks about being in school and like how many people of color teachers did you have how many like growing up in a in Burlington I'll just say it in a white completely you know not completely but a lot of white neighborhood and suburb of Toronto I think I only had white teachers I oh think my God. I, only, I think I did too I didn't even think I can't about think of that. one well we yeah, went to I, the same high school yeah I don't <laughs> yeah, think we true. had just stuff like that it's such a systematic thing that I we just grew up with it I had no I never even thought about these things and that's why this book's so important too for us to start thinking about this thinking about the high school thing and the white teachers things it's not necessarily good or bad in itself it's understanding that oh the people of color in that classroom did not have a teacher to look up to so a couple of years ago I went I'm in Prince Edward County and I went and saw Get Out at the theater I love that movie. I, yeah. I saw it by myself. I stood up and then I looked around the movie theater and I was the only person of color in small town Ontario. And that is just a matter of circumstance. Like I can't 
necessarily say that because there's an all white audience at Get Out that they drove people of color out. So there's a balance. Like I always do recognize when I'm the only person of color in the room. But now the point is that white people need to realize when there's only whiteness or there's only one person of color and all that. So I don't criticize Burlington for having the Burlington school system for having white teachers. There's just been a history of holding back people in people of color and educating them. And that's one of those balances that a friend of mine that I was talking to, that's a Pilates instructor. She wants to make an effort to get more people of color Pilates instructors. But in the conversation with her, the fact that first you have to get Pilates to appeal to people of color, therefore you get more students, therefore they get more involved. And then those students get more inspired to become people of color teachers. So it's not just that I want more teachers, it's that, okay, it's a system that needs to be changed to allow the process to happen. Yeah, because yeah, I was going to say the packaging, the, yeah. the fact that there's no white teachers could just be reflective of like long term outcomes of the socioeconomic gap that happens between the dominant race in society and other races too, right? Like it's sad when people aren't represented, especially in a case like in the Pilates case, it might be like, they don't care. <laughs> They're not into Pilates. Right. But in other cases where it's like, no, they, they would be here if they could be here, but they're still not, then you're right. It's a very big chunk of evidence in the, of the problem or whatever, right. Of the outcomes of the problem. But it also could I, be that people, I think another level is maybe people of color aren't feeling welcome in a Pilates class yeah. when they're you don't the feel only safe. one. You're yeah, you're the only person of color in that whole Pilates class. Well, maybe also you don't like feel comfortable like, with the education system being so white, everything. There could be even an argument for the fact that it would behoove them to keep people of color out because then, God forbid, they might introduce more facets of actual history. Right. Because I was thinking like if that's like not only does that black child in a class who doesn't have any people of color teachers not have representation, neither does the experience of people of color in education. So all we're getting is more white fed to us from other white people. So it's just regurgitating the dream. You know what I mean? And I don't mean dream in a good way. I just mean dream is in not reality. The power, the holding on mm-hmm. to power is what you mean, right? Yeah. I mean, there's also a thing called the familiarity bias. And that is the tendency, like if you're hiring somebody, you're more likely to hire someone who reminds you of yourself or reminds you of um, like a high performing employee. So this is kind of the idea around things like quotas. So if what you consider normal is what you see every day, if you can do a diversity quota, you know, like Hollywood is kind of basically doing and employers do as well, then you can change what people see as normal. But if there's nothing there in place to change what's considered normal, good people who have their blinders on don't even realize that they're selecting somebody that reminds them of themselves sometimes. I mean, sometimes they do. I mean, like you go mm-hmm. to an interview and sometimes you don't talk about the job as much as you talk about how much you love snowboarding or something, right? And you know when you're in an interview and you start having that conversation where there's a a similar interest that it's going well, right? And so I think that's the idea too, is that people have these biases and they don't even realize that in reading books like this, when you take your blinders off, you start thinking about that and you can try to start changing your biases or doing something to try to get around it. Be like, oh, I'm not going to go with my 
I, I got to think about this a little bit more, um, more logically instead of just going with my feeling. Yeah. Or just an invitation to bring more awareness and non-judgmental observations of self of who is in your network, you know, because we often, I recently learned about what you just shared, Meredith, and I was blown away because I saw I have participated in that myself when it comes to hiring and managing teams. And it was just through, like, once I found out, I was like, how could I not have paid more attention to who's in my network? But we do, we tend to be like these magnets that just attract more likeness in some ways to ourselves without maybe more intention. It's like they say you're process. attracted to people who look like you. And uh, and then when you like live with somebody you end up looking like, like me and Dan yeah. look very like right now. It's this is embarrassing. You guys but, dress the same. <laughs> you get like the same glasses, the same yeah. haircut. It's just ridiculous. Twisted thing from my experience is that growing up in Burlington with whitewashed media and like TV shows of the Zach Morris and the all-American white quarterback is that I was drawn more and more to white culture. So not necessarily hiring, but my friend circle was fairly white and that it's only been in the last year and a half that I've actually been far more vocalized in discovering my brownness and it's just reflecting on that that familiarity bias. I act white, I talk white, I don't have uh, an accent, I dress and carry myself very white with influences of black culture, which now it's like, oh, all right, so I, I love rap, but now understanding the context of what rap signifies and going back and there's a great rap documentary on Netflix and stuff like that. And just, it's, you know what it's, it's called? About, yeah. Oh, Sorry, I'll, I'll get it to you. Okay. But yeah. Let us know and I'll put it in the show notes. So just yeah. Yeah. message me and I'll put it in the show notes. Anyway, sorry, interrupted. Go ahead. Anyways, uh, <laughs> sorry, going back two seconds to the school system. And this is just a personal theory that I don't know about yet, but I'm going to toss it out to the table here because I think there are some parents in the room as well as women. So the educational system is used as a power tool. So one of the aspects is that like, I wish I had was educated better on how to do my own taxes. And who knows how to do taxes better? The billionaires that are doing tax hole loopholes. And I don't have kids and I'm not a woman, but it seems like proper sex education protects women and educates boys. And the fact that it is not being taught properly or Ford's rolling back stuff and all that, that keeping sex education limited keeps men in power is a theory I have in my head. I agree. Concur. <laughs> That was like perfect. Like we're literally just yeah, talking about this all the time. Well, isn't that also for race too? Like if we're not if we're not gonna teach race in school or racism in school and then it's just keeping the white people in power. It's the same same theory. We are teaching racism in school. We need to start teaching anti-racism. Anti-racism. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to be fine. Yes. Or at least the full history of Canada. like Of the world. Of the, yeah, the country. Of everything. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's what gets me the most upset. Canada was discovered. I love that idea. I love that I image of a power tool. It is a tool. It's a tool. Yeah. Of creating the society they want, whoever they are. I love that image of it. It's a tool. 
I think the education system, at least in North America, didn't originally come about in order to produce a certain type of worker, which essentially most of us have to find employment in order to live in our modern era. So in a way, it's contributing towards perpetuating the status quo. I love the topic of education. I'm all for, we're so overdue for a giant like overhaul. So I'm curious and very interested to see if as organizations start to realize because of the echo effects of COVID that we really do need a more heart-centered approach where we're having like real vulnerable, authentic discussions. I wonder if it will encourage this educational overhaul that would represent a new type of or promote a new type of status quo. It's hard because the, we- the education system is not only a tool, it's been a weapon. If you think about the Indigenous experience and residential schools, that is like one of the most glaring examples of how education was tried to be weaponized so that they could assimilate people who didn't even want to be assimilated. And it's all interwoven with what we're talking about right now with the fact that it's hard for white people to see how everything is so whitewashed because that is the battle that has to be waged in order to make education uh, a place where we are churning out the people that you call for it to turn churn out, right? But it's so, like, there are universities still that have, like, racist artwork on the walls and... Like there's micro, like for a, a person of color, specifically, I just wrote a paper on it. That's why I have these thoughts in my head right now. But like there are indigenous people who are currently trying to attend schools and attending school in itself is like experiencing a gigantic microaggression every day, all day. Reliving yeah, it'd just be like, yeah. yeah, total trauma right there. I think also it's not just revamping the education system. If we want to be honest, we need to vote in political representation mm-hmm. of people of color, of women, of people other than white middle-aged men. Right. Because then it's too easy for people to manipulate the laws to to only benefit white people. But before we get off the education, mm-hmm. can I say one more thing about education? Mm-hmm. Because I mean there's mm-hmm. the system, but also there's the individual things that white parents do that also harm minorities. Think about your network. And like my kid's going to kindergarten next year and people are like, hey, um, do you know anything about the teachers? Right. And so they have these networks saying, who's the best teacher? What class we want our kids to be in? What kind of extracurricular activities do we need? White people not only have these networks that have all this information because they're the majority and they have power, but they also influence where their kids are going. And so the kids start off with even more of an advantage than they already have. So it's hard because every parent wants to be a good parent. And part of that, if you want your kid to live in a better world, is stepping back and not using your privilege and not using your power to give your kid an advantage. And I think we can all agree, all, everybody who's a parent can agree that is hard. Yeah, I mean, it can be hard to be like, well, I do want the best for them, but I don't want anybody to be hurt. Like, I don't want to take away an opportunity from somebody else. Just the the stepping back catches me off guard a little bit because I have privilege as a man and it's more embracing, indulging in a way of using that force for good or changing that noise for positive. So there's just that hesitancy of when someone says step back or to, because there's a quote, something like, the worst thing is good people being silent and stuff like that. So it's not necessarily putting yourself down or hurting yourself 
because you still have a life to live and you still have kids to raise. And there is educating your children why they have white privilege. And it's a very difficult, icky conversation. And it's conversations that need to happen more than just by setting an example. They will see what you do, but it's also engaging them in the conversations that cause them to think. So this book, when I first posted on that, I'll talk about it. Someone else also told me about Policing Black Lives, which was written by a Black author, which is the Canadian history of police brutality and racism in Canada about Aboriginals, but mostly against Blacks. While the education of the history is great, it's actually White Fragility, I feel, is a stronger book for people to read because it causes them to have the self-awareness to reflect, to Mm -hmm. change personal philosophies. So there are advantages that are given, but then it's utilizing those advantages in a way to say to your child, and going back to the kindergarten and educating child, David Chang hated his Korean background ever since he was a kid and he going to school and having kids say that lunch is stinky and just the, the racism and the isolation that is felt from there. So then when the kid goes home, it's how do the parents react to a stinky lunch? Well, there was a <laughs> yeah, study like a done. Little, the little things like that. It's the little things. Yeah. Like like, I used to hate it when mom would send us with tuna fish sandwiches. Like that's nothing. Nobody makes hard boiled eggs, you know? (laughs) I always think about that when I give Freddie tuna. Totally like egg salad. I'm like, oh no. Egg salad. But then when it's like, it's like, this is your, yeah. Like, oh, I can't even imagine. I just, oh, it makes like everything. Well, also just, it's so such a sucky time in life when everything embarrasses you. Ugh. Glad I'm no. not a kid. But that's the I thing. It's hard enough right, Squiggy, without having to deal with another level. Yeah, without having yeah. to deal with that. Well, it's hard because you're like, you want, I think as the parent, you would want to, you want your child to embrace your culture. But if you're a, a parent of, I mean, if you are a parent of color or a minority, it must be extra painful because you're probably wounded by watching the fact that your culture isn't recognized or prioritized play out through your child. And anyone who has a child knows when you watch your child experience pain or hurt, you obviously want to protect them. So it must be incredibly, I don't know what the right word would be, but because you you experience powerlessness in that moment yourself, because it's hard for you to say to your child, like, fuck them. You know what I mean? Because it's like, actually, right now, that's the world we live in. So um, how am I going to get you? Like, I don't even know, because yeah, I'm obviously, I'm not that parent. So I shouldn't be talking as if I am. But like when I put myself in those shoes, I can imagine like the powerlessness. How do that you respond? Yeah. How? And I that's think- why when you, when Mary says step back and Squeaky's like, wait, be careful. That's why you as the white parent should educate your child and say, you know, whatever. So that your white child in that class with that kid could be like, what is this lunch? It might smell different, but it looks really interesting. Or even your child might be like, I know what that is. It's stinky and delicious, right? And like, because they've been exposed to it too, because as a person, you've exposed your child to more than just whatever white food is. Like, I don't even like, if we go British, whatever bland, like, you know, like. Yeah, that's the mission of the white person is to like own your privilege, make your people as soon as possible aware of it, and then educate them of how to use it so that you can bring more people in. Right. So like as a like as a mom at school, instead of being like, what's going to be best for my kid is going forward and say, I want the school to do bet what's going to be best for 
all of the children, whatever you think is best. And that's kind of where we are. Like, um, my kid's going to kindergarten and they're like, they called me and they're like, do you want her to be in just kindergarten or kindergarten's optional? She could go to grade one or she could be in a split. And I mean, inside, I'm like, I just want her to be in kindergarten. And I said, she's going to be a little bit older because of where her birthday lands. And what I, I'm like, I know that older kids can be harder and younger kids in classes. So what I want you to do is do what's going to be best for all the kids. So put her where you think she would be best. And this is what her personality is like. Because, you know, the reaction is like, oh, I want what's best for her. But what's best for her is what's best for the village. (laughs) For everybody. When you say, take the village to raise a child. Well, let's all look at all the children. I mean, just thinking any kind of, we talk about anti-racism. The reason it's so important is like, just think about children. It makes it so much easier. It makes it easier for some people to just be like, children all need our help now because they're growing up now. We need to make things better for them for the future. And like, that's why things need to change like right away. I had a conversation with somebody about the minimum wage thing in the States. And I'm like, I, no matter what the repercussion is, our children need food now. We need to increase the minimum wage now to help people. And then if there's some other un- consequences afterwards that people didn't foresee or didn't want, then deal with those then. This interruption is brought to you by Unpublished. Do you want to know more about the members and Book Interrupted? Go behind the scenes? Visit our website at www.bookinterrupted.com. Book Interrupted! Okay, my audio interruption is packing. I am in the middle of a move and I can't do it. I can't do it. Every time I try and focus my brain to pack anything, I try and do anything else. And I don't know why, because I'm excited about moving. I want to move, but it's like the closer it comes to moving time, the less I get done. And all the time I set aside to pack, I don't use to pack. I use like decided to make two, not one, two kinds of curries today, a beef curry and sag paneer because that's really important. <laughs> Moving's not. So, yeah, that's my interruption. Book interrupted. So I think it's interesting, especially like the whole, I think it kind of encapsulates itself in kids' lunches. Squiggy and I could have the same le- level of our parents could have come to Canada or like our grandparents or our great grandparents could have come to the country at the same time. But the level of assimilation, just by the fact that like she talks about this in the book that I'm of European descent as opposed to a colonized descent. Like it's so crazy how much like I I don't know what. You, oh, I get what you're too, saying. But yeah, like the level of assimilation, like there's always this like wall of allowing assimilation. Yeah, like there should, it's like everybody has like, to be more like us. We don't have to be like anybody. Yeah, like I'm, yeah. I, I'm assuming I'm jumping to conclusions and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that Squiggy had to assimilate more. Do you know yeah, what I'm saying? The fact that he had to assimilate at all you. is the problem, right? Yeah. Because all of a sudden, because wherever in history, the dominant force decided like, this is what it is. So everybody do it like this or be rejected. Right. Like he shouldn't have to assimilate at all. He should be able to come as he We should use you as the example. Sorry. Assimilation. Did end up portraying itself as a survival mechanism to join to be popular and all that. And this is another light bulb moment in this past year because because it locked in me all that plenty of time to think. 
is that I wouldn't be who I am and confident in various aspects if it wasn't for the arts. And mm. I grew up thinking about that it's all about just core subjects, English, math, sciences, and that I was a little frivolous for going into theater and doing a career in that and then switching to the culinary arts. But it is because of those arts that allowed me to form an identity and have confidence and have voice where now I am not necessarily Indian by cultural standards, but I'm still brown and I'm more confident in my brownness than I would be before. So there's a a survivalness aspect of it that was definitely there, but definitely my parents allowing my freedom to find who I am and then the arts was also a big factor in having an identity versus just being the model minority. I think so many of us on today's call feel the exact same way that, of course, like math and science are absolutely important and foundational, but I, and that we all feel the same way about that. If it wasn't for the arts, I don't know that any of us would have developed into the incredible human beings that are here today. Um, So Squiggy, props to you for just giving a nod to the arts, because I know with myself, I feel it saved me in a very different way than how it must have uh, supported you. But I feel the same way. Like the <laughs> arts knew about all this sort of stuff, inclusion and finding your voice and exploring truths as not absolute truths, but as subjective truths. And it's okay to go there and say, oh yeah, and that made me think about this. And that made me think about that. Like American History X is a great movie and I haven't even seen it in a while, but it still had its impact and it's really odd when things get cut and especially now the way the theater world has been hit hard by the pandemic it and movies in general it's going to be beautiful when the phoenix rises out of the ashes just like when restaurants come back and stuff like that but right now with everyone with a high volume of binging the quality is not like Mm. it's just it's a weird time for the arts in general like a year ago everyone was floored by bird box and then I don't even know what I could talk about that happened in the last three months. That was like, oh, that was an amazing piece. Mm. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about about makes, like how the quality. But know, it makes me think of like consumerism, it's, right? Yeah. It's that standard practices, which I relate to like colonialism or capitalism or, but I, I have, I feel like it's inherently white, but I don't know enough about it because I'm not economics. I'm not history. Like I don't have those foundations, but what I do know is mass production for profit creates terrible situations, poorer quality. And, you know, and it sounds like you're, that's a similar assessment can be placed on the arts right now, right? Cause so many people need so much stuff, right? Just like we all need to have meat at every single meal. So let's get billions of cows going and lock them up in automatic yeah. farms and we'll fire all the farmers and we'll use all the robots. You know what I mean? Like whatever. Right? It takes away the, the essence. Well, I mean, and bringing it, it back to the book, like what she talks about and racism, like that, what does she say that like in the arts, maybe the top grossing films, what, what did she oh, say? Yeah. And of the, the hundred top grossing films worldwide in 2016, 95 were directed by white Americans and 99 of them were by men. And it's like, they're ta- she talks also about like people who, percentage of people who decide which music is produced, 95% white, which news is covered, 85% white, decide which books we read, 90% white, which TV shows we see, 93% white. 
So it's like this culture of the stuff that we consume, and especially while we're home and have no outside influence, is going to affect the way that we deal or, you know, feel about anti-racism and about so books like this are great because then we're consuming other point of views. And what was the Moonlight? Was that the movie that won? Uh, That was fantastic. And that's a different point of view. Like, you know, we talked about the period end of a sentence that that won an Oscar and that like getting those kind of films and TV and different perspectives out there helps us all learn about different people and therefore bring it into our own lives. It's a safe place. It's a safe way to learn. It's the a whole, fun yeah, the way whole to learn, too. Of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it invites you not to be a passenger, but an active participant. Yeah. And like, I revisited Boys in the Hood. and Because yeah. I, when I was growing oh, up, so it good. wasn't impactful on me. But now, oh my God. I it was more impactful yeah. on my older sister. Right? Yeah, and his oh, dad. I want to go revisit yeah. it now. Yeah, that's a good oh, for movie. Sure. Back to the topic of, remember, I think you touched on this, Squiggy, about the controversy around the book being written by a white woman. A comment that I wanted to make about that is, so as you know, I did that other book with through my work, The Me and White Supremacy, and it's written by, I think, Lila. Lila Saad. Yeah, Saad. And um, so it's funny because, you uh, fit, and it was total tokenism again, and like the, the urges that a white person has, right? That you have to identify so that you can then correct, right? So you think, well, this is written by a black person. It must be better, right? That's, I need, because that's the whole problem is white people coming to black people like what can we do how can we do it what can we do tell us tell us all the answers right and so to be like thinking you need to do that book but when I did do that book when you first begin the work it's very uncomfortable and you feel like like I think what Sarah was touching on there's almost nowhere to turn because there is a default to exceptionalism because we have that privilege of that in our pocket and so when someone calls it out and is like nope sorry nope not gonna nope no, you must remain here in this, like they corner you into this uncomfortable corner and until you accept it, whatever, right? And I got there into that uncomfortable corner and I had basically a giant like white fragility explosion. I was like, I don't know what to do then. Nothing, you know, everything like, and I, (laughs) and then it took a minute, but someone else said it, maybe it was in the book even, it said white people need to talk to white people, right? Talk to your white people about whatever it is you're thinking and feeling. And as soon as I did that, all of that like need to please and not wanting to make a mistake and all of those things that half the time make you do all of the things you're trying not to do, they fell away, right? Because I'm talking to another white person and I was able to speak completely freely and not worry about being offensive. And it was so, I don't know if freeing is the right word, but it it made me able, it made me be able to go from and I can't remember if I hope I get this distinction right. I feel like I was stuck in shame. And when you're in shame, there's not going to be any growth because you're too busy shaming. It's perpetuates. Well, you're triggered for fight or flight. So you won't be able to absorb your cognitive ability is diminished. You're just frozen. Yeah. Right. And you want to move into guilt because yeah. like, and that's the, that's still the same yucky feeling or whatever, but from guilt, you can begin to like make amends. Right. So I was stuck in shame. And by being able to speak freely with other white people about all of the feelings that I was having around this work, I was able to make that move. And I didn't feel like that move was possible before I kind of had that little mini aha. Mm -hmm. So back to this book being written by a white person in response to the controversy about it should, we should be hearing this information from a person of color. I think we should, like Meredith, explore as many options as we want, but there is Mm -hmm. value to having this information delivered from a person that is the 
he recognizes the same as you. That does increase the safety in some way, at least right. it did for me. Yeah, if you feel safe more. and you feel like they, the author's understanding, you're like, well, if the author could get through this, then I can too. And mm-hmm. I think the other thing is that it's important to hear this message from everybody. And because if everybody feels the same, then racism will just be gone. If we can all be on the same page. So it's, it is important that these things are being said by everyone. And Absolutely. that's the thing about getting on the same page. If I'm not mistaken, she's a PhD. She has put in work. She has studied it. She has written these things. And yeah, she might be making some money. She's donating some, but she's not making JK Rowling money. <laughs> and yeah. back to you only have so many fucks to give in a day. I don't give a fuck about Robin D'Angelo when there's actual Nazis out there, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she's trying yeah. to do yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very, and very so succinct. she's earning a little pocket change to pay for her grocery bills. Yeah. So Layla Saad uh, has a podcast called uh, Good Ancestor, and she interviews Robin D'Angelo. And I listened to it last night. It's really interesting, worth the listen. It's about an hour and 20 minutes. But they talk about White Fragility, the book, and about both of their experiences, and also about her work uh, Robin D'Angelo's work with for 25 years with the diversity training and also people of color who have influenced her and how she knows that she brings in her whiteness into every discussion that she's always learning and growing it's really worth a, a listen and Kim I think you'd be interested in that too because you read both 100 percent well. so t- take a listen and see called good ancestor I'll put I it in the really show like I really like her thing about being a good ancestor like I want to be because like we all just think about that like how can I be a good ancestor um, I think it's a really powerful idea I really like that I like it too because it reminds me of indigenous perspectives where they're like looking seven generations into the future and they think of teachings many more than that into the past. And you're just right here in this moment in time. And I think that I'm just basically restating what Mary is saying. But if you do think about what you're going to leave, you know, like you want to leave something better for your future. Just while we were talking about podcasts, I find I found I felt bad not knowing the person's name of the that I was talking about with the rain. And he's actually quoting someone else I just discovered from my search. But the podcast that I heard with that analogy used was the Brene Brown podcast. And she had Ibram X. Kendi on, and it was about how to be an anti-racist. So if anyone wants to listen to that too, you can hear that there. That's his book, right? How to be an anti-racist, right? I'm not sure. It says how to be an anti-racist podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I follow him on Instagram. And I'm also not a Robin D'Angelo fanboy. She also just came out with a memoir that was like released last week. I'm not going to read it. I don't care to read it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm more likely to read how to be an anti-racist than that. Uh-huh. So just the, around the controversy of her, she's she's a white author doing anti-racism work and it, it's books. No one makes a shitload of money off books. Right. Another good point. Yeah. Well, maybe they can make is... a shitload of change. Hopefully. But for being <laughs> but for not being black, she's probably as qualified as you come to talk about the topic, right? So it kind of also is reflective of this, like everybody is so sensitive and worried of making those missteps that they want to be like, oh, that's a white person talking about black people things. We heard about this, you're not supposed to do it. And then yeah, everyone, like nobody takes into account all the credentials, all the experience, all the work, all the self knowledge that she's gathered so mm-hmm. that she can move forward respectfully in work that she believes. Cause that's what we're being asked to do, right? So if, if she can't do it, how can anyone that's not even 
close to. I think people also act out in different ways when the true feeling is fear. Mm. It's sometimes it's that's the easy way is to lash out. There's also the public forum. She's the most qualified in a public forum, but in terms of qualifications, I either all of us have the same qualifications to talk in a scenario like this, in a setting like this virtual room. She's got the best qualifications for the public forum from a white person. I just don't want people to fear talking about anti-racism in that they don't feel qualified to, because everyone is qualified to have discussions about anti-racism. That's what I'm saying too. And Uh when you watch the the controversy play out against her, it makes people who, because she probably feels confident she wrote a book. People who are beginning the work and very cautious and scared to see that happen. They're like, well, if she can't do it, I definitely can't do it. You know, and I agree with you. Do you guys want to touch upon just as we get to the last few minutes, maybe would this be, do we want to kind of do like next steps? Like what is each of us like one big highlight or takeaway if we look at this book within a bigger context of there's more work to be done? How have each of us maybe decided well, that it was a result of reading this book that have kind I of have presented themselves? I thought well, about yeah. while we were talking about it was that I'm going to look into I think I've heard of the book. I just can't remember the title that a book about how to talk to your kids about skin color and racism because I have a kindergartner and she's in Burlington and there's one person of color in her class and this kid thinks she's a Disney princess and (laughs) (laughs) so like yeah I don't even know how to start I like it's like I I was like sitting here thinking but I can't I don't know where to I have a podcast I can send you uh, you guys good would you uh, talk yeah so that's my children takeaway. about race okay. and race I like it so like, when I wasn't sure if I was gonna say this but I will when my daughter went to kindergarten in Burlington most of her friends were either multiracial or people of color and they were the minority but they were all friends it is important for parents to talk to kids about it because kids will automatically gravitate to who they think they should be friends with. And my daughter was more friends with multiracial kids or people of color. And those were more, like she had, she did actually have one girl, but it was, she was being picked on by other kids. And I told her like, you need to play with that girl. So she became their token white girl in their group. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's what they did in kindergarten all on their own, 25 kids. And these six were friends. It depends on how internalized like the white is right ideal is too, though. Because I was mentioning this study, this was something that was used to help with, to end segregation. But there was a study done with black children and, and dolls. And they had dolls of different colors from dark black to white. And, you know, they were asked like, which doll do you like the most? Which doll do you want to play with? Which doll looks trustworthy or whatever? And the even the black children in the study were showing white preference. And some of them, and this is the worst part of the thing, were like, when they were asked like, which doll looks like you? The children who were the darkest skin color, like many of them were upset to the point, like they couldn't, they didn't want to say, you know, like that's the one that's like me because they had, they had already had that like shame ingrained for being who they are. And 
And all, it makes me think also on a lighter note in Armchair Expert, Monica Padman is very open about how she is, she's an Indian woman and how she used to try so hard to forget everything about her heritage. She went with the white people. She wanted to be like, she just, she didn't want to even acknowledge it. She wouldn't let anybody come to her house. Like, and she thought she was like, but she's like, she's visibly darker skin, but she was like, so she was pursuing it as well. So it plays out. So I just was saying, I think it's, dependent upon how ingrained that standard is and how and then it's just so upsetting because that's how hurtful it is for people who are not what has been decided is like the the thing to be or whatever mm-hmm. it just I mean we can all relate on whatever levels as women in you know media and that you know image of perfection well imagine if like if, anyway it's similar like that uh, representation matters like right growing up I can't think of any brown people on television. Yeah, for sure. Well, I derailed the moving forward plan that Kara made. So I'm sorry if we want to get back on track real quick. Once you finish the book, because there's a lot of points in there. Like, it's great to have ideas right now moving forward and there's nothing stopping you. But once you finish the book, your ideas will be far more formed and you'll also have time to prepare yourself for this stage to talk about what you're going to do. Put your plan in place. Talk to your partners. Talk to your kids. Okay, maybe this is a fun way to end it. So one of my big things is that just stumble forward. We're not going to get it right. It's not going to be ideal. It's not, this is not the perfect book. But as long as you're doing something, you stumble forward, you trip, you say something off-putting, pick yourself up and just stumble forward. Because as long as everything's in motion and you're heading in the right direction, that's what matters. And as you stumble forward, as you finish the book, you'll create your own plan for what you want to do next, as opposed to just being put on the spot in the final two minutes of this. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I agree. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on this episode of Book Interrupted. If you'd like to see the video highlights from this episode, please go to our YouTube channel, Book Interrupted. You can also find our videos on www.bookinterrupted.com. The impact books have on our lives is not limited to the words written between the covers. Some books inspire new thoughts and send us to unexpected places. Follow me, Meredith, every Sunday as I descend further and further in my recurring blog segment, Down the Rabbit Hole, at www.bookinterrupted.com slash blog. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Book Interrupted. Moments you can look forward to on next week's Book Interrupted. Even looking at how the last conversation with and how this one gets to a point where it's almost fun and it's weird. When you notice things, you're like, wait a minute, that, that's ridiculous. Notice in my dreams, people with different skin color. And until I can be like, yeah, racist. Oh, yeah, racist. Because I don't categorize myself as not white. That all of a sudden, like, I felt like I earned this badge because I read this book. Rockabye, white (laughs) people. (laughs) You're going to be okay. We know you're fragile. (laughs) And you're racist as well. Book Interrupted.